0: Only
1: redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret, and today I am talking to Laura. Kurt Robbins she has been active for many years as a speaker and school trustee and is credited for creating the Buckley Schools nationally recognized committee on diversity equity inclusion and justice she has written for HuffPo and The Temper on the subjects of race recovery and divorce she is a 2022 TEDx speaker and LA Moth Story Slam winner. She is also the host of the fantastic podcast, The Only One in the Room, and the author of the memoir, Stash, which we will be talking about today. Welcome, Laura. Hi. Thank
2: you so much for having me. Power.
0: You got a power yeah, I do, right? we got to, We're really going to expect you to deliver now. I feel the pressure. I'll do my best. Yes, as you should. We like a good bio. So let's start with your memoir, Stash, which is really a fantastic book and one of those kind of page turner. You don't often say page turner memoirs, but it really is a page turner. What led you to write the book? And tell us a little bit about your personal history and kind of the background for the book.
2: Yeah. Again, just thank you for having me on. I love your show and I love that it's like, this would have been the show I would have listened to during this period of my life if it were (laughs) available and I would have gotten so much out of it.
0: Oh, thank you.
2: Yeah. I think it would have been really helpful for me. During Stash, My Life in Hiding takes place during a single year. It's the year 2008. And it's a 10-month period during that year. And and there are a couple of flashbacks, but basically I'm taking you on the journey from the time that I file for divorce and through the end of the divorce, the mediation, and which was a 10-month period. And during that time, I was the PTA president. We actually said PA president. I had just been asked to join the board at my children's. I have two boys. They're very elite, independent school. And I was the first black PA president since 1972, I think. So there was (laughs) quite a (laughs) a little while. while. I was one of very few black families in this school, which was fine. But I was also aware of that a lot. I was in a Hollywood marriage. I've been struggling with how to describe my marriage without making it sound like something that it wasn't. But I was married to someone in the entertainment industry. Who was high profile and working a lot, which left me home with our kids who were born one in 98 and one in 99. It left me at home a lot with them. And so in very real ways, I was a single mom some of the time because I made a lot of decisions on my own and I had a lot of the responsibility. In other ways, I absolutely had a partner who was a partner in our relationship and a terrific father. I'm still a terrific father to our boys. Accompanying all of this was the fact that I became addicted to Ambien, which was a sleep aid prescribed to me from my doctor when my kids were babies because I wasn't getting any sleep and I thought I was dying. So is that enough?
0: Yes, it's great. I mean, it's lots of things. The visceral way that you write about the lack of sleep. I had something that I described as sleep panic after having my second child. I mean, I didn't sleep great with my first, but I developed like a sleep panic is all I could think. I could not sleep after having my second. It was this feeling of, you know, the baby's going to wake me up. And so that would keep me awake. And just this feeling and it really took me back this description of your sleeplessness and then the bed kind of calling to you during the day. And I completely without uh, prescription drugs, but just NyQuil and everything else became very dependent on sleep aids. And it really spoke to me that feeling of like, tiredness becoming such an overall definition of your life. When you're tired, it affects your whole day. And being tired becomes such a frightening feeling. And so you originally started taking Ambien, as I'm sure a lot of people do, because the doctor said, you need a little more sleep and this
2: will help. Yeah, Um, to reset my system is what he wanted to do because I hadn't been sleeping exactly what you just described. There was this hypervigilance around anticipating the next wake up. And how long would it be? And my kids were like, I mean, their diapers were always full. When they got out of diapers, their beds were always wet. (laughs) like, And it was always one after the other. They never woke up at the same time. So I would get one to sleep and then the next one would wake up. And so he wanted to reset my system because, you know, I think his observance, which was my you know, I came to him in this state of just like, I don't know what's happening, but I don't know if I'm going to survive it. Raw, just totally raw. Yeah. Just raw. Yeah. And so he's like, let's get you sleeping and then we'll see what's going on. And, you know, the Ambient man, like, I describe it like I had an alarm bell ringing in my head for a year and a half, maybe two years straight. And I never got any relief from it. And then, Margaret, when I took that first pill... You describe it in the it book. It silent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was just... And it was gone. And I woke up feeling energized. I had the best night's sleep I'd ever had. You know, like from childhood on, I never had a night's sleep like that. And I felt like I had energy. And, you know, I whipped off like, you know, the... Whatever I was doing for the snack mom, you know, chart that day <laughs> and, and, you know, showed up at school with hot lunch for my kids and, you know, was cheerful in the car going home. Didn't care whether or not they had finished the homework with the tutor. We'll do it at home. Like all the things I wanted to be before. I mean, this is when they were babies, so they weren't doing all that yet. But the feeling that I got from Ambien was that I could do anything. I was kind of super mom and, that lasted for about a year. It was really great. It wasn't every day that year. It was one bottle of 30 for a year. Oh, wow. Okay. So you started
0: very slowly, and then suddenly it began to creep in as something that was much more of a dependent. Ambien is one of the long list of medications that was originally marketed as non-addictive, right? It, it was not supposed to be, it was just something to take. It helps you sleep, but don't worry about it at all. Then your experience starts to become that you have a very strong dependency on it.
2: I do. It was like you said, it's that Hemingway quote, it's gradually and then suddenly It was like, you know, then it was one a night the second year and it was one and a half to get to sleep the third year. And then by year six, the year I write about, it was 10 ambient a night. It's interesting how well you get the sense
0: in the memoir, like the analogy everyone uses nowadays of the frog in the cold water and it it heats up slowly and the frog dies. Whereas if it was hot, like if someone told you... Well, you'll be taking 10 of these pills and then you'll be taking it all day just to stay level. You would have thought that's crazy. That's, you know, a complete a behavior that's completely outside of my worldview, but it happens slowly. At what point do you start to realize that it's become
2: something that's a problem? That's a good question. I'm not really sure at what point. Certainly, there were a few points when even when I was writing it, I was like, well, you should have known here. <laughs> right. Right. You know, I have this big medical emergency right at the beginning of the book. That should have been my indication that it was a big problem. But I don't, I mean, I think I knew that then somewhere subconsciously, but I didn't admit it until July 4th of 2008 when I couldn't take my kids to see the fireworks. We were at our beach house. That was the plan. That's why we went there was to go see the fireworks and spend July 4th weekend there. And and I was in such debilitating withdrawal that I wasn't able to take them. And, You know, I thought I'd had a stash of pills, hence the name of the book, in our beach house, and the stash wasn't nearly enough to get me through the weekend. It wasn't even enough to get me through the night. And so I have this experience there that brings me to what I call the rock bottom.
0: Yeah, it's a chapter called Rock Bottom. And it, again, very visceral writing that brings you right to the place where you realize this is a problem. You're in a complicated situation. You're in the middle of a divorce, but still living with your ex-husband. And the pressures are coming from all sides to say, this is not a good time to go to rehab. But you decide
2: it is time for you. I do. It's not a decision I wanted to make. I really did not want to go. I was deeply ashamed of being an, an addict, being a mother who was an addict. And so that admission meant that, you know, I'm in a leadership position at my kids school. So they're going to know, you know, my soon to be ex husband's going to know in his family, which is a huge family. Like they're all going to know, like nobody knew at this point. I had concealed it really, really well, but I would then be admitting to all these people that maybe the behavior they had seen can now be explained with the fact that I'm an addict, the cancellations, you know, the leaving events early, like all those things that maybe someone would now put together and say, oh, that's what was going on. I wanted to avoid that at all costs.
0: This book is a memoir about addiction, but To me, it's really a book about identity and how our feelings about our own identity inform so much of the decisions and the choices that we make. And we're going to take a break, and I want to come back and talk about that identity piece. I'm talking to Laura Cathcart-Robbins. She is the author of the new memoir, Stash, and we'll be right back. And did we mention they come in delicious flavors from raspberry lemonade
1: to cherry pomegranate? Stay hydrated with Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes. Visit sportsresearch.com and use the code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your
0: purchase of Hydrate. That's S P O R T S R E S E A R C H.com, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order. Laura, This book, as I said, is for people who maybe haven't had a substance use problem or haven't, you know, had any of the lifestyle elements that are really interesting and sort of, you know, voyeuristically fascinating in the book. I think there is a very fundamental thing that happens to all moms that is about identity. And you talk about that some of this identity that you had built as this sort of, you know, glamorous Hollywood person, this PA, PTA president at this very exclusive school, that some of that identity felt like people use the term imposter syndrome at work to describe like, well, I shouldn't even really be here. And that for yourself, as a black woman, as a woman who didn't come from this, you know, fancy kind of Hollywood background, that you describe yourself so often in the book as looking from the outside at the people in your life and thinking if they only knew the truth, that your life was kind of juggling these plates of identity to keep yourself palatable to all of the people in your life. Talk about that part of the book, because I think that every mother has felt that way, whether it's just sometimes still I'll be walking around and I'm like, these are my kids who gave me these kids. That's crazy. (laughs)
2: Totally. Yeah. And just to go back a little bit, I think what you're describing started for me when I was a little kid. And I had a stepfather who didn't really care for me. And so in order to kind of keep peace in my house, when I was authentically me, it rubbed him the wrong way. So I learned to edit myself and become a different version of myself, so that my house was more peaceful and my mother was happy. And safe, you know, to keep both of us safe. So it was survival. There wasn't any physical abuse, but there was absolutely emotional abuse. And there was violence in the form of yelling, which terrified me. So the survival for me was edit yourself enough so that we can avoid all that. And so I did. And I really carried that with me throughout my life. And I think that's when I started building the scaffolding for my addiction was back then by that gap between who I was authentically and the gap and the version of myself that I needed to be in order to survive. And so, you know, now I'm at the point you're talking about when I'm becoming a mom, I'm a a grown woman. I don't need to survive that way anymore. But I don't think internally, I know that. I think it's so baked into me at that point that I, I shift and edit and alter myself in a way so that I can fit into whatever environment I'm in. And, and that absolutely goes with race. But it's certainly like the most foreign thing, like being black and white spaces is easy for me. I'm so used to it. I don't even think about it anymore. Being a new mom amongst all those other moms, that was like being dunked into cold water. I didn't know anything. I was not that girl who babysat. I never changed diapers. I'm not terribly fond of other people's children. (laughs) Same, Laura, same. Yeah. (laughs) I do have kids that I like, but like in general, I'm not trying to go to your kid's birthday party. (laughs) Right, right. That's not my idea of a good time. (laughs) As a grown woman with grown kids,
0: (laughs) right? (laughs) Yeah. That's really interesting. That's right. Because I think a lot of women feel a pressure to like fit yourself into something that is pleasing to other people from a ton of sources. And your story, you had this chapter of your life as a young person where that had a really strong calcification that like this stepfather needed to be pleased. But I do think it there's something that echoes for me with so many moms I know, this feeling of... We're putting on a weird mom suit to be this other person that doesn't feel tremendously authentic to ourselves. Have you heard that from readers of the book or just friends of yours as you've begun talking about this issue? Because it really resonated with me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, I think my favorite part of this whole process, actually, that's not true. I love writing. I loved writing the book. But the favorite part of the book being out in the world is, or my favorite part rather, is... Are the messages that I'm getting. And I'm definitely getting a lot of messages from people who are still using it in recovery. But the other faction are the moms, you know, they are coming to me and saying, thank you so much. I feel seen. I, you know, without ever using a substance, I went through those same things. I made those same observations. I tried to be this type of mom. And it's so hard. And, and people, I shouldn't say that. Well, that was the message I'm getting from them. And I know for a lot of moms, like my observation at that time when I was, you know, in my early 30s with two kids that had been born a year apart was that it looked so easy, you know, for everybody else. People had twins, people, you know, who had a young person, I mean, a little one and then twins, like they were doing it. And they seemed the thing that was missing for me, it seemed very swimmer get out of the pool. Like there was a certain way to do things. We go to my gym. We go here. These are the preschools we go to. These are what we're wearing. We're all shopping at Target because, you know, we were shopping at, you know, whatever, and it was too expensive. But now we're buying the same cotton tees for this price. And and then, you know, like I write about in the book, the jewelry shows, the coffees after drop-off, like there was this, this community and they all seemed to enjoy it. And that was the piece that was missing for me. I really didn't enjoy any of that. I love being with my kids. You know, I still do. I still do. I, my sons are 25 and 23 and you know, I hung out with one last night and I'm going to get to see the other one today. And we have Sunday dinner at my house every week and we all get together with their girlfriends and everything. Like I love my kids and I love that then, but I really didn't get nor enjoy all the stuff that seemed to go along with it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I so identify with that. And I think that, I think that there are people who certainly enjoy it more than I do. I mean, the fact that you worked for the PTA, Laura, I mean, that's a bridge too far. They come up with that clipboard. I'm like, stay back, PTA people. You know, I don't do that. But I think that every mom to some degree, has had that feeling of like everyone else seems to be wearing the right mom suit and doing the right mom moves. And I feel like somehow this looks so much easier for everyone else than for me. I think there's something really universal
2: about that maybe. I do too. And honestly, I think, you know, me starting off as, you know, snack mom in kindergarten and then chairing the fair and all that stuff that I did, you know, I was a publicist for years before I had my own company. And I think those skills were transferable to those jobs. Yes, It's people managing, it's organization, it's marketing, you know, and showing up. And I think that was kind of a cover for me. Like if I could do these things, you couldn't really question what kind of mother I was. Even though I wasn't doing the motherhood stuff exactly the same as you or looking like I enjoyed it as much as you did, I was still in this position where it kind of put me above reproach. And so it was a shield for me in a way, as many things have been in my life. So, yeah, I was the PTA president, but I wasn't like probably the other, you know, 50 who came before me (laughs) in that it wasn't a role that I had either coveted nor cherished. You know, it served a purpose for me, which was a really selfish purpose, which was basically to keep the heat off of me while I learned how to be the kind of mom that I needed to be. And at what point in the process
0: of going through this addiction, rehab, divorce, all of the events that happen in the book, did you have a light bulb moment about this kind of outside Laura looking in at this kind of Laura that's doing all of the things to look right was there a light bulb moment about that? Or was it like a slow realization about this is how I've been living for too long, and I want to change that?
2: So, you know, during that period, I got sober, and I got sober through 12 step recovery. And the first piece of that, that question that you just asked, the first half of the light bulb came on, as I'm telling my story in recovery meetings, terrified, I'm going to be judged, they're going to kick me out. They're going to be like, this is too terrible. How, what kind of mother are you? How could you? And I'm telling my story. And just like those messages I talked about, moms are coming up to me and dads too. Parents are coming up to me saying, thank you. Thank you for telling what's been, you know, telling my story, telling what's been going on with me. And that was shocking to me because I really thought it was just, you know, it was the worst thing that I could be was an addict and a mom. And then, this is the really interesting part, is when I got comfortable telling my story in the rooms, as we say, in recovery meetings, I took that with me out into my school community and started being honest about what my life was like and what it looks like now and how I'm doing everything that I was doing then, but without a buffer. You know, I don't have drugs and alcohol to numb it or to help me cope or you know, any of that stuff. I didn't have any substances. I didn't really have anything except for cookies. <laughs> cookies were very helpful. Delicious substance. Yes. And finding that so many of these moms who, you know, will aren't addicts, aren't alcoholics, who will probably never see the inside of a 12-step meeting, were also identifying and relieved that I was talking about this stuff. So then I'm looking around going is everybody hiding like how they really feel about motherhood? Is my idea, the perception that I went through all these years with wrong, that they were all given a manual that I wasn't, and they knew how to do certain things. And now I'm finding out that no one got the manual and they're all doing really just the best they can. And that was a light bulb moment for me that it was still terrifying for me to be honest about what I was feeling, what I was doing, the You know, I had taken my kid to the, and he's older now, but this is when he was in high school, the PSAT. And, you know, they give them at certain times at different schools, you have to sign up way in advance. And I got the time wrong. And it was the last opportunity. It was the last one they were giving. And I got the time wrong. And (laughs) I got him there and I was leaving. I dropped him off and he called me and he said, mom, you know, it started an hour ago. I can't go in. And I sat there in the parking lot when he got back in the car and I was like, I can never tell anybody about this because like, what does this mean about me as a mom that I got this so wrong? This is the, one of the most important tests, like my kid's going to take, this is going to determine his future. This is what I'm thinking. And I've messed it up. I failed. And I felt like drug addict, Laura, again, I felt like that junkie mom again. And it took me right back to that. And I took a deep breath, like I was going to dive underwater and I called my ex-husband And I said, hey, this just happened. And, you know, I called the whatever you can call for the PSAT and asked if there was any other way that he could take it. There was. My ex-husband was definitely annoyed, but it wasn't the end of the world. (laughs) And it worked out, you know, but years before that, I could have never admitted it because I would have been too ashamed of not what I did, but what I was. Right. It was a failure. What I was if I forgot those things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I want to talk even more about that and drill down on this authentic piece for moms because it's so important. I am talking to Laura Cathcart-Robbins, the author of the new memoir, Stash, and we'll be right back. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to
1: improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body
0: burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use fresh to get $100 off your Lumen.
1: That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, Lumen dot me, and use the code fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for
0: sponsoring this episode. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is...
1: while
0: Precipice of failure that is gaping underneath our feet all the time. That there is this idea that like good moms are always walking down this road, but our own road somehow feels like these flimsy like boards that we're going to fall through into precipice of failure at any moment. And I find we talked to Janelle Hanchett who wrote a book called "I'm Just Happy to Be Here," and she was away from her kids for two years because of alcohol uh, addiction and she was talking in our conversation about like the worst thing happened to me. The thing that like only happens to quote unquote the worst moms, they get taken away from you by other people because you are not allowed to be their mom for this period of time. And that I think there is something in that memoir and this memoir that is so affirming that like, these failures that we all spend so much of our lives worrying about, it's not underneath you all the time. And like, even the worst thing happened with Janelle. And she has a thriving relationship with her kids because she was able to come back, get sober, and go on with her life. And I think, how do we get rid of that voice for all of us that says, you're not good enough, you're wrong in whatever unspecified ways we all think we're wrong about. Because I'm sure that people look at you and think, well, she's the PTA president and she's beautiful and she has this glamorous life and I could never be like her. And here you are looking back at people and thinking, well, she makes these good cookies and I'm a bear bad Like We feel sometimes like we're all looking at each other and saying, well, I'm a failure compared to, it's like a circular kind of judging squad. How do we finds that authenticity or solve that fear in ourselves? I mean, big question. So Laura, if you get this one right, we can stop the podcast from here on. So
2: go. (laughs) Forever. Well, you know, I think one of the, the ways is what you're doing specifically with your show. You know, talking to different moms about different experiences, that rich diversity that you have in amongst your guests is so important. Because, you know, my POV is very specific. It's privilege. It's race. It's addiction. It's motherhood. It's divorce. You know, these are all. And so for me to find myself, I can find pieces of myself, you know, but if you only interviewed, you know, moms who were doing it well, who came from a certain part of the country, who looked a certain way, I wouldn't be able to find myself probably in your show, or at least not very often. So I think that I just think what you're doing is so important and not just you specifically but I think these varieties of ways that we yeah No but let's dwell on me for a yeah. moment. I mean I think what you're saying <laughs> if I'm hearing
0: you correctly is the pro- the savior of the universe is the Wellfreshal podcast. If I don't let me put words in your mouth.
2: <laughs> yes, it's true. In addition <laughs> to books like the one you just described, you know, and I just I think that the more people that kind of come out about what their motherhood or their parenthood experience is like. And they're honest about it. Because that took me such a long time to be honest about it, because I still want it. You know, I still do this. I want to match the energy of the people around me. I don't want to be a downer. I don't want to be vibrating up here. I want to be somewhere there. And if they're all matching right here, I want to match that and have a similar experience. And my admission You know, that I gave my kids phones probably way too early that what I discovered, (laughs) this was really funny to me, when they were like getting out of middle school into high school and that punishing them meant punishing me because then I had to deal with my kids with no phones. I had to deal with my kids at home if they were grounded. Oh, yeah.
0: I had to deal with never knowing where my 11 year old was because she didn't have a phone. I was like, all right, we're giving in and getting a phone.
2: Right. But, and then so, like, but being honest about how sometimes I didn't punish them because I didn't feel like dealing with it or I made the punishment easier. Like, I never wanted to talk about that stuff. Okay. You're only grounded for three days as opposed to the full week that they should have been because that meant I was going to have to drive them around and cancel my own appointments and blah, blah, blah. blah. And so I didn't ground them very often either. <laughs> but <laughs> And look, they're now functional adults. It worked yes, out fine. Yes. But the biggest arguments were definitely getting ready for school every day. That was the thing that I dragged them both out of the house. One day I dropped Justin off without his shoes. <laughs> so- <laughs> We're still doing that at my
0: house. And let me tell you, I am looking forward to the phase where I'm not dragging anyone,
2: anyone else out of the house. Right. Anyway, but, you know, I just didn't ever talk about that stuff before. And I think that even just if it was just me and you and there weren't listeners and you and I were just having this conversation, that would help the voice in my head. Because already during the time that you and I have spoken, you validated so many pieces of my experience And echoed it, you've said me too, you know, same, me too. And so that gives me permission to say it out loud to the next person. And I think, you know, it's like that pressure cooker. It lets the steam off. So I don't have that pressure in my head telling me that I can't admit this or I can't expose this. And even if I am judged, it's not the end of the world, you know? Yeah. And I think the
0: secret that we think that we're carrying is, I remember talking at one point on the podcast, we were talking about mom rage and dealing with anger. And I struggle with my anger. And at some point I was talking about grabbing one of my kids so hard that I left finger-shaped bruises on his arm. And I went back and forth with Amy a lot. Like, I think maybe I should delete that. I think that's really like a terrible thing to say. And we went back and forth and I left it in. And I was very struck by people really reaching out and saying, Thank you so much for saying that I have occasionally like hurt my child when I was angry. And knowing that like, you know, this person who maybe hosts this podcast, who I look up to as a mom has done the same thing. Like it gives us an opportunity to say like this scary, bad part of me that nobody would love if they saw it's the energy of holding that in is almost always Worse than just the energy of sharing it. And, you know, you have to do it in a safe way and safe spaces and all of that. But I think what's so beautiful about this book, it's that access point of the scariest parts are heavier. The scariest parts are holding it in and that letting it go and the connections that you find in this book with your husband, your ex husband, your new husband, your children. It's only possible because of telling your truth. And I'm going to quote you. You say, I wrote stash for my sisters and brothers of all backgrounds and colors who are scared to be themselves. And the gift of this book is that you show yourself so viscerally and beautifully and say, like, you can see the freedom that you get from that experience.
2: Thank you for quoting me back. I love that. (laughs) I was just thinking when you were talking about you know, being angry at your kids. And what I also learned in recovery, it'll be almost 15 years for me this summer. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, picking up the mirror and putting down the magnifying glass and that difference between something that's private and something that's secret. That saved my life in this program. This has saved my life, period, Uh, because those two things were the same for me, you know, and I guarded those secrets like, literally with my life. And I think that was the, you know, that just fed the inauthentic Laura. You know, we can't show this, we can't tell this. And then certainly there are parts of my life that are private. Like, I don't write a lot about my romantic life with Scott, because it's private. It's beautiful, but it's private. I don't write a lot about my kids, because that's private to me. But it's not a secret. And the secrets are what I needed to expose, and those are the things that I was terrified to expose, and then those are the things that people are so grateful that I discuss or that I talk about or that I write about.
0: Absolutely. Laura, tell our listeners about where they can find – I would say where you can find a book. I think in 2023, most people know how to find a book, <laughs> but tell them where they can find your book and where they can find your writing and where they can find you not – you know, by stopping by
2: your home, but just on the internet. <laughs> I'm most active on Instagram, and that's at Laura Cathcart Robbins, C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T, Robbins, two B's, one S. We're also, you can find everything about me on the theonlyonepod.com. That's our website that has all the articles, all the speaking gigs, all the podcast episodes. This one will be on there when it's released and you'll be able to see what fresh hell there, which will be exciting for me. And, you know, the, just like where to buy the book, just really quickly, I love to plug your local independent bookstore. Yes, you can go online. There'll be a link on my website where you can buy the book at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all those stores. And I do that all the time, but if you can, support your local independent bookstore by going there. If they don't have Stash, ask for a copy of it. They'll order it for you really quick. They get a discount the more books you order from them, and they can buy more books and stay in business, and they're dying. Independent bookstores are dying, so I just like to give them a plug. Please shop there first if you're able to. Absolutely, and we will link
0: to all of those places in the show notes. Laura, thank you so much for this book, and thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you.
3: Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free